Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not already doing so. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Jonathan Cohen, Executive Director of Conciliation Resources. The topic for today is peace building. Conciliation Resources focuses on peace building. And we're going to be looking at the different moving pieces when it comes to peace building, different types of organizations, how they complement each other, how they interact with each other, how they're invited to help out in conflict hotspots. We're going to be diving in into a case study in Ethiopia and the work Conciliation Resources has done in Ethiopia. And so without further ado, Jonathan, it's great to see you again. A big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Well, it's great to see you. Uh, we've had a few conversations, and I have to tell you, each one of them is fascinating, and uh, including the last one. So maybe we can flesh out some of the things we spoke about last time. Um, you're the Executive Director of Conciliation Resources. Why don't we start by finding out what Conciliation Resources is all about? Well, thank you. Um, so we're a, a non-governmental organization, charity. We've been operating for almost 30 years now and grew out of the context of the early 90s post-Cold War era. And we're very much, our aspiration when the organization was founded was how do you bring together communities that are torn apart by violence? And how do you support the people who are most affected to contribute to peace? And one of the things that I think we were very struck by, and my colleagues who founded the organization were very struck by, was the the experience that the people who are most affected by violent conflict might well have tremendous insights about what to do to prevent or resolve those conflicts, but they're very often the least well-resourced to do anything about it. And so the aspiration behind the organization was how can we work with those people to support them to transform their conflict? And over 30 years, we've grown from a couple of people working in the back room of a of someone else's office to an organization of some 85 people uh, working in about 20 conflicts around the world with staff in several continents uh, and more than 70 partner organizations. Wow, remarkable, remarkable. How do you get your funding? I know that's a big part of the conversation in your day-to-day. Uh, tell me a little bit about how you get your funding and, wh- and what you might be looking for as well. Yeah, so funding's obviously a challenge. We're now Nowadays, we're an organization of around... 10 million a budget of 10 million pounds 10 to 11 million most of our money comes from government sources um and most of that comes from what we call restricted grants so we'll get funding for specific projects and that might be to support a dialogue process in the georgian abkhaz context or to work with community groups in the central african republic to support them to influence the the national dialogue or to work in Papua New Guinea with people trying to influence the um, political process there, all sorts of different projects that we get specific funding for. Um, We then also get some what we call unrestricted funding from a couple of governments, the the Swedish government, the Irish government have been long-term supporters giving us unrestricted funding. And and that unrestricted funding is is gold dust. It's, It's the holy grail for organizations like us because it gives you the flexibility 
to respond to sensitive situations, to work on political issues that might be less easy to fundraise for, and oftentimes to bridge funding gaps between the restricted grants that you get. Um, we do get money from some philanthropic trusts and foundations, which is which is very valued. Uh, we don't get that much from individuals. And I think one of the issues for organizations like ours is how do we diversify our funding sources? One of the big challenges at the moment is the governments that have been provided providing unrestricted funding are, are less inclined to give unrestricted funding. And then there's a bigger overall issue in the funding environment, I think, which is that the defense budgets are going up. And it sounds a bit crazy. At a t well, it's not crazy. At a time of war, defense budgets go up. But at a time of war, it's even harder to raise money for peace building. And that's a bit of a contradiction, I think. And, and there are some rather shocking statistics, I think, around, around the, the finances of this. Um, and I can, you know, just to give you a couple of statistics that strike me. Um, the, in 2019, the World Economic Forum estimated that violent conflict costs the world $14.4 trillion. Um, and that's 10%, with 10% of the global GDP being spent on causing and then trying to repair the damage of, of violence. But the amounts spent on peace building are minuscule by comparison to that. And, and they're going down. And, and that's, I think, really disturbing. Since the war in Ukraine, there's been a significant escalation in military budgets. In Europe alone, 13%, uh, a 13% increase, globally almost 4%. And one of the challenges for the, the peace building and development uh, fields is that a lot of uh, development assistance, overseas aid, is now being spent to address the dire needs of the very significant number of, of refugees that have been caused by conflicts within host countries. So a lot of UK aid is spent on Ukrainian refugees within the UK. There's a real need there, and that needs to be addressed. But it, it detracts from the resources available to address the humanitarian and peacebuilding needs in the context where the violence is actually happening. Gotcha, gotcha. And the people who work at Conciliation Resources, what are their backgrounds? Where do they come from? It's, it's quite a variety. So we have uh, a, a number of colleagues who come from conflict regions themselves, some of them working to bring change in the countries or in the regions where they're from. And we have uh, staff based in contexts um, like uh, Ethiopia, like Central African Republic. Um, we have colleagues in uh, Uganda, Ghana, working on conflicts in or around those countries. Um, we have people who've gone through um, master's degrees in, in peace studies, in, in international relations, mediation. Um, and we also have fantastic technical expertise in our finance team, in our comms team, fundraising team, the operations team. So structurally, we have an operations department, a programs department, and a research and policy department. And so people will bring different skills to those areas of work. But for the programmatic work, we have people who have deep expertise and long-term understanding of the contexts where they work, either having studied or worked in those contexts or being from those contexts themselves. Mm. Now, peace building, very difficult to find someone who's going to be against peace building. I think that sounds great. Um, 
But I think it's probably a little bit more difficult to find people who genuinely understand what's involved in peace building, what are the different moving pieces, and how you might go about it. Um, I've had some mutual friends of ours uh, on the show, like uh, Comfort Era from International Crisis Group, um, Chris Strahd, who, who, who was the UK ambassador to South Sudan, both involved very much in, uh, in peace building in different ways. And, and yet, here we are also with conciliation resources, yet another, another moving piece in a, in a big puzzle. Give us a little bit of insight into what these different organizations do and how yours actually goes about peace building. Absolutely. So it's interesting. You, you, you mentioned Comfort and Chris. Chris comes at it from the role of a diplomat representing the UK Foreign Commonwealth Development Officer Office, and he brings that diplomatic impetus to the work he does. Comfort as the president of International Crisis Group, which is a phenomenal organization doing tremendous research and advocacy around the causes of conflict and providing very powerful recommendations. Um, there's a very strong analytical dimension to it. Our work goes in, into a different domain in the sense that we're our work is founded on good analysis and we, and we do work with crisis group in that area on occasion. But we then use that analysis to say, okay, what can be done to change the situation? And how do you work with the people who are most affected to um, bridge divides in conflict and to create opportunities for change for political solutions. And I think this is one of the critical dimensions. How do you create political solutions out of deep entrenched violence? And, and that's one of the biggest conundrum of our time, I think. In, in terms of what peace building means in practice, as I mentioned earlier, we work in partnership with people in the context. So it's about identifying the, the causes of conflict, identifying what factors uh, perpetuate violent conflict, and trying to design steps to address those. That requires long-term accompaniment. It requires um, coordination between multiple actors working in collaboration, which can be really tough. Uh, everyone always wants to see coordination, but people are not always so happy to be coordinated. But I think it's really important to get that right. And, and the work can involve a, a wide range of things. Some things that we put a lot of emphasis on to are processes of dialogue and mediation support. So how do you actually bring people from across conflict divides together to analyze situations, to problem solve, to, to grapple with potential solutions. Um, and we've, we've some, we often do that at a more community or re local or regional level, but we're also involved in formal processes. So in the Philippines, we were a member, we still are, and we help coordinate something called the International Contact Group, which is, comprises four states and four non-governmental organizations that went through a long process of talks helping a Malaysian government facilitator to, to negotiate a peace deal between the government of the Philippines and the Moro Islamic Liberation Front. And that signed an agreement in 2014. And we've been working since then to help implement that agreement. And that's something that often gets ignored. You can get to a peace agreement, but can you actually sustain it? And can you implement it? And how inclusive is that agreement? It's really important that you negotiate and sign peace agreements. But if it's just a matter of political leaders signing a deal that doesn't reflect or represent the, the needs and the cares and the concerns of their society, it's unlikely to sustain. 
So we put a lot of thought and an effort into how do you make the agreement more inclusive? How do you make the participation of society in achieving change more inclusive? Um, and how do you engage with those actors, armed groups, uh, unrecognized entities that have, have a, are able to, to block agreements or have been part of conflicts and are excluded? How do you bring them into the political processes to make a difference? So, that, so peace building will encompass quite a range of, of different activities um, spanning dialogue, mediation, reconciliation, community engagement and participation and, and, and elements like that. Yeah. That community engagement, that stakeholder engagement, that participation, um, you know, stakeholder engagement, multi-stakeholder engagement in normal civilian life in the corporate world is in itself already challenging. A, a whole new level when you talk about armed conflict, uh, where trust hasn't just broken down, down but uh, it's underpinned by tragedy, where those actors, those individuals have firsthand experience of loss uh, and, uh, and not only a lack of trust, but a um, high degree of animosity as well. Uh, how do you get individuals who are so diametrically opposed to... Uh, to even start uh, engaging with each other and creating that, that safe space for that to happen. And I know, I remember when we were uh, at the London School of Economics having a, a very pleasant coffee not that long ago, talking about some of the work you did in Ethiopia. Yeah. So I think th I mean, that's a great story, in fact. And it's, it's really about relationships, creating the space, listening to people, and also recognizing that there are people inside these conflict contexts who want to bring about change and you and you need to support and start working with them to enable them to change their societies there are people who it'll take a lot longer to change but the ethiopia story is fascinating we were approached in 2012 by the leadership of an armed group called the ogden national liberation front who'd been invited by the ethiopian prime minister into talks now the ogden is the somali regional state in Ethiopia. Ethiopia is a federal state. And there'd been a 25-year civil war, um, tens of thousands of people killed, displaced, uh, poverty as a result of the protracted conflict. And the, the leadership approached us. Um, they were aware of our work because we produced a study on peace processes called Accord. And they would receive this study on peace processes, come in and talk to us to see what lessons they could glean from it. And they said, we've had this invitation, but we've been fighting so long. We don't really know how to talk, how to negotiate. Can you help us devise a strategy? They, they, we started working with them. There were some Kenyan politicians who were acting as intermediaries. And we started supporting them as well. And over six years, we supported a talks process that really tried to interrogate what was dividing the, the parties, what were the constitutional issues, what were the trust issues, what were the political blockages in the way. And we helped the ONLF leadership reframe their thinking about what self-determination means, which is a really thorny issue in the world of conflicts, because it's always seen as a step to secession from a state, that an entity, an, a, a, a community within a state, often an ethnic group that feels marginalized or a minority, will want self-determination. Well, in this instance, they wanted self-determination, but as we explored the issues further, through some really tough debates with them over a long period of time, what became clear is they wanted autonomy, they wanted 
a degree of sovereignty. They didn't need independence. They were willing to stay within Ethiopia if certain criteria for the development of their region were met. And they were able to reach a political compromise after six years, a six-year process. And a very moving moment for me was after that agreement was signed. So four weeks after the agreement was signed, I visited Ethiopia and met with one of the leadership of the ONLF who had gone back to be their representative in Ethiopia. And he came running up to me, waving his mobile phone, showing me a photograph of his four sisters. And he said, this is what peace means. Last week, I visited my sisters in Jigjiga for the first time in 25 years. He'd not been, Jigjiga is the capital of the Somali regional state, and he'd not been able to go back. And I think we sometimes forget the human dimension of what reaching an agreement can mean, the transformation it means for people whose lives have been blighted by conflict. That was a very powerful moment for me. And since then, what we've been doing, a number of things. We've helped the ONLF transfer into being a political party and part of the political process. But we've also done a lot of work to help establish a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that is helping the, the many victims and survivors of the conflict go through a process of healing, but also document what happened so that things won't be forgotten. And which I think is a really important element for people who've been through violent conflicts to try and um, prevent a, a recurrence, and then to start processes of holding the perpetrators to account. And that's a long-term process. It takes a long time. Uh, we spoke earlier about funding. This process of working in the Somali regional state over six years cost less than half the price of a tank that the British army might buy. A chieftain tank costs five or six million pounds. Well, we spent in, in six years of work less than half of that to, to bring to an end, help bring to an end the 25-year conflict. So I think it's pretty good value for money. And it's also, I think, really important in the wider Ethiopian context. And we, we've seen last year terrible violence in Tigray um, in, in, in Ethiopia. And some of the lessons from the Somali regional state as to how peace was achieved and has been sustained there are going to be very relevant as Ethiopia tries to reconstruct a relationship with Tigray to, to try and prevent a recurrence of violence there. Remarkable conceptualizing what a what a tank costs and what the whole peace building process there in Ethiopia costs and uh, and the differences in, in sums. How are you called in uh, when the, whenever there's a conflict? Is it the one of the, the one of the parties in question? Is it the national government? Is it uh, the UK government? Who brings you in, or do you just do it proactively? Do you just show up and say, "Hey, we're here"? Uh, we try to work through invitation. Um, I think it, we always do an assessment of who's doing what in a particular context. What are the what are the gaps? What are the needs? Um, can we add value by being involved? Are we going to be able to resource it and stay involved for the long term? Because we really do try and work in places for the long term, and often we work in contexts that are not in the glare of the publicity and often get forgotten. I mean, people don't think about Kashmir half as much as they should or about what's going on in uh, Papua New Guinea or in Burkina Faso or the Central African Republic. So we, we try and work for the long term in, in many of these places and have worked in contexts for 10, 20 years. Um, sometimes it will be local civil society organizations that invite us in. Sometimes it has been governments or armed groups uh, as the example. Um, we tread carefully in getting involved and we're conscious that as a relatively small NGO, we don't have the capacity to work in high intensity violent 
conflict situations. So we, we work in trying to prevent conflicts from escalating into violence or trying to get to a peace once the violence has happened. Um, but it's all critical for us is, are we working alongside people whose conflict it is? And oftentimes that will mean working on either side of a conflict divide or increasingly we're seeing quite fragmented conflicts with multiple actors. And that goes back to the relationship issue of, of building the relationship, building the confidence so that, that people will feel um, they can they can rely on you to 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 stick with them and be there. Yeah. And once you're in and hopefully once you succeed, um, how much is is uh, how much of your attention and resources have to go into that? let's say, quote unquote, aftercare or after sales care, you know, where you want to make sure that the the service you offered actually and the solution that that the stakeholders came up with is indeed sustainable. Because I, I imagine it's just like any program that's not uh, that easy to digest. Uh, it's easy to fall off the wagon, right? And uh, and start getting into old habits. Absolutely. And I think I think the 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 importance of sticking with the implementation of peace agreements um and oftentimes it's not about a big fancy peace agreement more and more we're seeing a lot of local agreements between um i'm for instance we do quite a lot of work on uh conflicts emerging out of the climate crisis and and i think that's going to be a bigger and bigger issue and one area of that is working with um herders and farmers who are coming into conflict through much of the central belt of Africa. And I think it's really important that you, you stick with these relationships over a long period of time um, in order that the, the people are accompanied to keep going back to, to good processes that can help them resolve, resolve the issues. Um, there's, a, there's a big need to keep governments interested and to keep donors interested because without funds, it can be very difficult. It's really important to, to keep engaging with local and national governments to keep them on the ball. And obviously, they go through processes of change. So you're often having to work with new ministers or, or new officials. And, and almost what we see our partners having to do constantly is re-educate people on, on new ambassadors. I mean, there's a diplomatic turnover, lots of time keeping people abreast. And, and I think one of the important things for us as an organization is, is the generating evidence and learning from what we do and sharing that. So there's a, an important dimension to share ideas, to share lessons as a way of keeping people's attention on, on what needs to be done to sustain peace processes. I think another important issue, and you use the term aftercare, which I think is a very interesting one, more and more there's consideration given to the, the mental well-being uh, of both the people who experience conflict and goodness me, do they experience trauma and people who experience trauma will, it, it's hard for them to find a new equilibrium in their life. Um, and so whole societies can be traumatized by conflict, but more and more we're recognizing that people who do the peace building, who do the mediation can be traumatized by their experience. And we need to be careful for, for our own staff. And I think one of the things that we struggle with, to be honest, is the, uh, the, 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 the work-life balance dilemma. I mean, people in organizations like mine are tremendously committed and passionate and work incredibly hard. And we rarely have the resources to enable us to have the capacity to do all that we want 
And we're not always as good at managing everything as we want. And I think getting the operational side of things right is really important. So we have to pay attention to the the need for for counselling and and mental health support for our staff. And it's an area where we're learning, but we've got a long way to go. And we're actually doing a very interesting project at the moment with a professor of psychosocial and counselling at Birkbeck University to to better understand how, how we work on that and to look at elements of how mediators and armed groups also psychologically prepare for and engage in peace processes. Yeah, because your staff are not exactly going to some leafy high-tech office in Silicon Valley where you get free Ben and Jerry's ice cream and have a pool table. Huh? You're, you're, <laughs> it's a different setup. That would be nice. I, 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 and, and they might start asking for some of that, which I couldn't blame <laughs> them. Uh, regarding some of the academic side, you, you just mentioned this professor at Birkbeck regarding the social-emotional well-being, but uh, is there much by way of sort of the negotiation analysis, uh, reconciliation approaches, frameworks? Uh, is that stuff that's unfolding as well that you rely on, or is it pretty much a field that's that's there, it's static to some extent, and you know gets built on by anecdotal uh, work experience? I- I think what I've observed over a number of years is much more collaboration between universities and peacebuilding NGOs. And we've had great partnerships with um, a particularly close working relationship with the wonderful Professor Christine Bell at the University of Edinburgh on issues around political settlement, uh, as an example. And and. I think we we learn a lot from the academic partnerships. There's a a great academic um, network called the Conflict Research Society that I think brings people together for uh, analysis, for um, sort of looking at challenging new research. And and I think throughout areas of our work, we're trying to both bring in the learning from academia, but also engage with and shape some of their understanding of of how conflicts play out and of how processes are mediated or what does reconciliation mean in in practice. Because what I observe, particularly in the younger cohort of academics, is that they have very strong theoretical underpinnings for their work and conceptual frameworks, but they're more and more keen to get out and actually see what does that mean in the real world. And and as we bring that expertise into our organization, it can only enrich us. Um, whether we're able to do it as much as we'd like, well, that's the old resource issue. And and we're, we're time poor, but uh, have a lot of um, ambition. Yeah. Are you frustrated at all by the fact that some conflicts are extremely high profile? Uh, we can just open any newspaper any website you see ukraine you see just now the madness that's unfolding uh in the middle east uh with with israel and gaza there are many conflicts that don't get any airtime at all now perhaps they're not as consequential i guess in terms terms of the sort of geopolitical um dynamics uh, where things are less likely to get spiral out of control with major uh, state actors getting involved and unpredictable uh, consequences. But are you frustrated by that? Uh, this 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 case study here with Ethiopia, for instance, I would wager that most people listening to this have never heard of it. Mm. I, it's not that I'm frustrated because one can understand how the media cycle works. It it. It, and not just the media cycle, the political cycle. Um, and I think you're right. There are geopolitical factors um, 
there are historic factors why certain countries grab people's attention more. I think it, it, one should be careful. We should never detract from the need to address those high-profile situations, but we should be very wary of taking our eye off other situations because a situation that seems low-profile and inconsequential, um, Syria, 2007, 8, 9, turns into a conflict that has shaped the Middle East for the next decade. Um, and so I think we have a rather a northern western centric view of many conflicts, but the, the number of deaths in Ethiopia and Tigray last year, Afghanistan the year, years before that, what, one could list a whole range of conflicts. So I think it's really important that we, we do try and keep our eye on those. And and I'm less worried about what the media does and about what um, governments and, and the UN do, because I think that the if there's not a sufficient attention and willingness to invest in trying to resolve conflicts that are escalating early, um, that's a great failure. Preventing a conflict is always much more important. If you can save lives early, if you can prevent blood being spilt, it gives you more of a chance of finding a political solution sooner rather than later. So I think it's really important to keep investing in, in situations that aren't in, in, in the, the public eye um, and, and not forgetting those because there might be as many, if not more, people suffering as a result of those violent conflicts. And, and violent conflicts in... Um, and will have a huge developmental impact. And they will, you know, I think one of the big issues of our time, for instance, is migration and the fears of people migrating to Europe. Um, well, if we're not paying attention to why people are leaving their countries and why they have the aspiration to live better lives, we're getting things wrong. You and I, I think, have got family histories of people leaving countries where they didn't feel safe and where they felt they needed to leave in order to find security. So I can absolutely understand why someone wants to do to leave a country like Eritrea or, or, or you know, many of the countries in the central belt of Africa, where there are a real persistent conflict issues that people don't feel safe. And yes, sometimes it's about wanting, uh, to, and, and it's an economic driver, but I, I can respect people wanting better lives for themselves. And if we're not trying to work to resolve conflicts in those situations, we're, we're preventing development from taking root and preventing people from creating opportunities that might, over time, create less incentive to, to need to, to flee. And I think you had a great interview with um, the director of, of um, Refugee Council the other week, in which she and, was and very... Vers and Vers Solomon. Yeah, I think Andrew yeah. was very eloquent on those issues. Yeah, he, he was indeed. How did you end up here? Or did you always think this is where I want to be uh, for my career, uh, peace building? No, I think it was serendipity. I, I mean, I, I was a child of the Cold War. I was concerned about the, the threat of nuclear holocaust. I was the, the Soviet-American rivalry disturbed me enormously. And so I, I studied history, then I studied Russian, and I wrote a, a thesis on Soviet history. And I finished it just as the Soviet Union collapsed. I was very lucky to spend the whole of 1991 in the Soviet Union doing research. And then um, the Soviet Union started to 
you, you saw conflicts escalating in the Caucasus, the risk of conflicts in the Balkans, in, in the Baltics, well, the Balkans came as well, in, in Central Asia. And I got drawn into working in uh, peace building in the South Caucasus. And, you know, I didn't think it 30 years later, I'd, I'd necessarily still be doing it. But I, I particularly the Georgian Abhaz conflict, I got involved there in 1992. And that, I think, in many ways shaped my working life. I worked with some extraordinary people who were trying to find peaceful ways to solve the conflict. And I learned a lot from very courageous people. And I think one of the things that is inspiring in the face of conflicts that sometimes feel intractable, and I always say we need to find traction in those situations. We can't just succumb to a conflict being intractable. One of the inspiring things is to see people who don't have the luxury of, of leaving a conflict region in the way that someone like I do, um, what they do to try and change that situation, how they reach out to people across conflict divides, how they challenge people within their own societies who might be advocating and articulating a violent approach. Um, and they often get accused of betraying the interests of their community. And I think that's that's really tough for them because they are committed to their communities, but they want to see their communities live in peace and they want to see them live in peace with people across the other side. And, and that I find very inspiring. Hmm. Before you run off today, what's that key takeaway you'd love to share with our audience? Um, I suppose, I mean, the, the key for me is that, you know, we got to understand that com conflict is complex, and um, but it is possible to prevent conflict. And we've seen, whether it's in the Ogaden situation that I spoke about, or Colombia or the Philippines or Northern Ireland, we've seen that wars can come to an end. It's not easy. It requires patience and persistence and it requires collaborative work and it requires resources and we've got to keep working to convince governments to put more money in and i think we've got to recognize that it's about not just looking at the political level it's about the, the sort of high level it's about looking at how communities can can bring about transformation and how that can percolate through the system so i i think that for me um holding on to the the notion that dialogue and engagement can bring about peaceful processes is, is, is and that the work of the people most affected can make a difference is is really important well jonathan thank you so very much for joining me and joining us on the do one better podcast today i have to tell you i'm i'm delighted we we had the uh, opportunity to meet for the first time a couple of years back and that we have stayed in touch and that we are learning from each other i'm certainly learning from you and your work uh, so here's to uh continued success uh, and hopefully to your services not being needed too much, but unfortunately they are. So you're doing some amazing work and, uh, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks ever so much. It's been a pleasure. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Jonathan Cohen, Executive Director of Conciliation Resources. For information about this conversation and more than 200 other interviews and case studies with remarkable thought leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at lidji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Thoroughly enjoy producing today's conversation for you, and I will catch you this coming Monday.